going to be spending our time this morning with the Apostle John. So if you could, take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to be spending our time in verses 7 through 12. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And as you're turning there, I just want to just give a little reminder of just when you are reading a passage of Scripture, how to look for the main point or what the author is trying to tell his audience, trying to write to them. And the first part of that is just through simple observation, looking for key words, key phrases that help us better understand what he is saying. So this morning, as I read this passage, look for the key word that John is using. And also, I see lots of kids out there in the congregation. One of my great joys of walking around the downstairs in our children's ministry is seeing our children carrying around Bibles. So kids, look at me. You too, as you're reading, look for the word that John keeps saying over and over. So follow along with me as I read 1 John starting at verse, chapter 4, starting at verse 7. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and has sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So what's the key word? Love, right? This is is an easy one. In fact, in these, just these few verses, just these, just these six verses, the word love is used 15 times, including the two times that John addresses his audience as the beloved, those who are beloved by God. So you can expect that us reading this passage this morning, we are going to talk about love. However, there is a problem for most people in our generation when we talk about love, and that is that the wor- we live in a culture that has a complete different, different definition of the word love. The world has a, has, a, has a definition for love that is far different than the biblical use of this word. So we need to be careful that when we come to scripture like this, hearing about love, we need to have a biblical understanding of what love is. Love is something that everybody wants. Everybody wants to be loved. But most of the time, when people are talking about love, they are talking about something far different. They are talking about something very shallow, vain, selfish, even, even sometimes. For example, we live in a society where we do things like we celebrate Valentine's Day, which is a good holiday for spouses and whatnot, but it is a day marked on a calendar where you are supposed to show love to your spouse or significant other. And like I said, great opportunity. 
great, great day to celebrate. But what often happens is for many people, it turns into rushing, ho- rushing home from work, stopping at a store, possibly even a gas station, buying half-dead plants, junk food, and then you bring it home and you hand it to your spouse or significant other and you say, I love you. That, that's a pretty just shallow way of looking at love as far as responding to just a day marked on a calendar. And because experiences like that, love is sometimes thought is something that is cliche. It's just even tacky. So there's a big problem of just the worldly view of love. It turns into something just kind of shallow, vain. But the biggest problem is, most of the time, it's something that's actually, instead of about the other person, is more centered on ourselves. It is something that is more selfish. One of the biggest genre of books, movies, television programs is the genre of romance, where the plot centers around one person's desires for another and the stories, the plot, is driven by those desires that cause drama and excitement many times in godless and sinful, sinful ways. And to the world, that's mostly what love is. It is a selfish desire. It is something about yourself based on feelings and emotions. And in many ways, people will sin to get what they desire, They will justify sinful actions in the name of love. It happens all the time. It's so sad, but so many people, they get married in the name of love. They love that person. And then later, they will will go back on the covenant of marriage just because they don't love that person anymore. They don't have feelings, emotions towards them. So they're willing to break that covenant. And speaking of marriage... One leading, leading arguments to justify same-sex marriages is just a simple phrase, love is love. It's just a simple phrase of this is why this is just because you should be able to act on whatever desires that everybody else has. Love is love. Human history is filled from beginning to end to where we are today, which is countless recordings of murder, adultery, extortion, all in the name of love. And as Plato once said, love is a serious mental disease. That's the world's view of love. And as Christians, we cannot adopt the world's twisted view of what love is. We need to have a biblical understanding of what it means to love. We're, not only do we need to have an understanding, but we are commanded by scripture to love one another. And to be obedient to that We need to understand for we can rightfully live before God in the way that he has commanded us. The biblical view of love, it is not just, it is not an emotion or desire. It is an attribute of God. It in many ways defines Christianity of who we are as followers of God, as children of God. And it is a command to live by. So in our passage this morning, from 1 John 4, 7-12, we are going to uncover three reasons why believers must practice divine love. Three reasons why believers must practice divine love. Love is more than a feeling. It is a divine attribute of God that we should practice. And the first reason to practice divine love is that we're going to uncover in verses 7-8, through 8, 
the first reason is to exemplify God's nature. To exemplify God's nature. Look down at verse 7 with me. John starts out this verse with a request. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. And just to stop really quickly before we get into his request, just spending a moment to think about how he addresses his, his original audience, the people he is writing to, he addresses them as the beloved, people that are beloved by God. And I'm sure John is saying this because he loves these people, that he, these early Christians that he's writing to. But as we are going to uncover in this passage, it is these early Christians, they are loved by God. So much so that they are defined as being loved by God. Christians are those who are the beloved. And we can almost, I could almost say amen and stop right now. We could spend the rest of the week just thinking about that. That is something to meditate on a long time in the rest of our lives that as Christians we are loved by God. However, we would miss the point of what, how John is writing, writing to these early Christians. John writes to them this request. Let us love one another. Now this request, it's a request, but it's really more of a command. It is an expectation. He is requesting these early Christians, these beloved Christians, to join him in loving one another. Now this is a very interesting request. If you take this request just completely out of context, you rip it from your Bible, it's just a standalone sentence, let us love one another. It would just kind of be a nice little saying, maybe a motto. Honestly, it would look really good on a bumper sticker. Just this nice little saying, let us lo- love one another. I can, I can picture, imagine a car going down the road with one of those co- coexist stickers and right beside it one that says, let us love one another. And just to be clear, I doubt the Apostle John would be okay with that out of context bumper sticker. But what keeps what keeps this request from being just some shallow thing that you say, let us love one another? And that is the biblical understanding of love. We need to understand what, what the love that John is speaking of before we can apply it to our own lives. So just, just a little Greek lesson. There are three words in Greek that are used for the word love. The first one is eros, which is more of a which is more of a physical attraction, even a lust. It's actually not even used in the, in the New Testament. It's just in the Greek, Greek language. The other one is phileo, which is affection for a friend, which, as many of you probably know, the city Philadelphia derives its name from, the city of brotherly love. Now, I don't necessarily care if you, you know those two, but the third one, this is the one we need to have great understanding of. And it is a word that many of you familiar with, you are familiar with, but John in this passage uses the word agape. He is talking about agape love. And agape is a very theologically rich term. It can be defined as a loyal, a faithful love. Many times in the New Testament, it is used in terms of giving yourself up for another. It is a selfless, self-sacrificing love. And as we're going to find out, it is a divine love. Paul gives a good description 
of agape love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 7, a passage that many of you are very familiar with. It's read at a lot of weddings. Let me read it for you. And this is what Paul says about agape love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, he writes, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account wrongs suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This love that Paul writes about, this is a foreign, alien love to the love that we mostly hear about in our world and in our culture. And with this in mind, this this definition of love, this self-sacrificing love, let's go back to our bumper sticker saying, let us love one another. But instead of that, the love is an agape love. Let us agape one another. Let us be selfless and self-sacrificing towards one another, towards others, towards those in the church. And knowing this definition completely changes the way we would usually view John's request here. With this definition of love, it goes, the word love goes from something just kind of fluffy, something kind of nice, something kind of, kind of cliche, to honestly, for most people, this request becomes absurd. And the reason I say that is, as sinners infused with selfishness, that request cannot be carried out. That is something where love no longer is appeasing to us when we are talking about us self-sacrificing ourselves for others, being selfless towards others. And just as, a, just as an exercise, right now, just think of someone that you love. And that person's face, I'm sure, is in your mind. And guess what? I'm sure you do love that person, but replace that with somebody that you don't naturally get along with. Somebody that may kind of rub you wrong. Somebody you just kind of naturally do not, are not fond of being around. And all of a sudden, thinking about being self, selfless towards that person, that kinda, that's a little bit harder. That's a little bit more tricky. That's something that we don't naturally like to do. And yet, that's what we're called to do. And it is easier to say that we love someone who we naturally get along with. And that, that is easy. It is easy to love those who are like ourselves. Now, in God's providence, in his church, he has formed his church with people from all different backgrounds, different diversity, different ideas, different opinions. And he saves all kinds of people. All kinds of people make up the church and even our church. We have different opinions, different diversity. And yet, many times those differences can cause conflict. And I'm sure that even in this room, there's a lot of different views that we have. We have different views on politics. We have different views on how to educate our children. We have different views on COVID policies. And the list goes on and on and on. And many times, those differences can cause conflict within us, within our relationships with other Christians. So how could room like this, us, as sinners... How can we love each other the way that John is commanding us to do? Look down at verse 7 with me. 
4. Love is from God, and everyone who loves God is born of God and knows God. John just simply states, for love is from God, and that's good news. It's good news that love is from some, something else rather than ourselves. It has a divine source. It is from God himself. True love is divine. In, it is, in fact, it's not just from God, but it is who God is. As John later says, just skipping forward a little bit in verse 18, God is love. In Exodus, in Exodus 34, um, chap, chapter 33, rather, Moses is up on the mountain with God, a story many of you are familiar with. And during that time, he makes a very bold request to God, and that is to see God, to see his glory, to see the face of God. And God grants him this request, but not in a way that we would think. God does not show Moses his face, but rather God tells Moses who he is. In Exodus 34, 6 through 7, after God has hidden Moses in the cleft of the rock, even shields Moses from seeing him, he passes in front of him and he says this, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So how has God revealed himself? He has revealed himself as a God who abounds in loving kindness. He is a God who is love. Love is the very nature of God, and God loves because that is who he is. That is his nature, and that's what he does. But now what about us? We are supposed to practice the same divine love as Christians, as children of God. And how can we practice that same divine love as being sinners? Look back down at verse 7. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So everyone who loves is what? Born of God. How can you have divine love? It is through being born again, having new birth through our creator, having new spiritual birth. A life of a Christian begins with a new life in God. It comes, it comes with being born again. Ever since the fall of Adam, humans are physically born, but spiritually dead. We are hopelessly lost in our sins. There's nothing we can do for our own salvation and our standing before God. We are completely unable to save ourselves. The moment you were born, the moment you take your first breath, you are spiritually dead. But here's the good news. Because of God's loving nature, he saves those who are dead. That is something he does as a loving God. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, these are verses that Rick is going to be diving into very soon. But after Paul in in the first part of chapter 2 explains how these believers in Ephesus were spiritually dead in their transgressions, he then says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we are dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved. So those who God makes alive, who brings a new spiritual birth, are new. You have a new birth through God. And this is not a work of ourselves. It is something that God does through his love. At the moment of salvation, you are giving a spiritual new birth. And it's not that you're perfect. It's that you are now alive spiritually. You now have a new mind, a new heart, a heart that is convicted of sin, one that has desires to follow God, and one that is now being shaped to be more like Christ. And one of the characteristics of a born-again Christian, somebody who has new birth, is that they love, they practice love with others. They exemplify God's loving nature. Those who are born again, those who are born of God, they love like God loves. They exemplify his nature. But that's not all. Back to verse 7, another characteristic that born again Christians have is that they know God. Now, John does not say that these Christians know about God, it's they know God. So, what's the difference? Here's an example. As, as Americans, as citizens who live in this country, we know a lot about our president. He's in the news all the time. We watch him run for office. We know a lot of information about him. And, and me, as being an American citizen, I know a lot of things about our past presidents, our current president, just because of who I am in this country. I know a lot about our presidents. But our current president, for example, do I know him? even though I know a lot about him. Now contrast that with how I know my wife. And it's completely different. It's a completely different scenario. I have a relationship with my wife. I know her in a way that she is a part of me. She's a central part of my life. I know almost, almost everything about her. She's connected to my life that, that my whole life is centered around where every decision I make is based on something about who she is and our relationship together. In many ways, she defines who I am. When you think of her, you think of me. When you think of me, you think of her. My life in many, time, in many ways is centered around my relationship with her. I know her. And I fear that for many churchgoers in our society, they know things about God just because of who they are in their culture and they go to church and they know some things about him. But do they know him? And those who are born again of God, they know God in a way that they have a relationship with him. Their life not only centers around who he is and every decision that they make is affected because of how they know God, but also us knowing God should define who we are as Christians. It should be the definition of what we are, which is what a Christian is, those who are followers of Christ. We should know God in a way that we have a relationship with him. And those who are born of God, those who know God, they love like God does. In fact, the love that you display, it is evidence that you are born again. Love is a product of new birth through God. And without evidence of divine love, there may not be new birth. Look down at verse 8 with me. 
John continues. He says, the one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. His very nature is love. And those who do not, know lo- do not love, they do not know God. It's not part of their nature. It's not something they are born again and something that they, are, they exemplify, something that they display, something that they live out. So there is nothing that God has done that enables them to love. They do not know God. And without new birth, you cannot have divine love. But through new birth... Through God's love of giving you life, not only are you able to love like God does, but it is an expectation. We are to love God. It is something he is com- love like God does. It is something that he has commanded us to do. The way you love others matters because we are called to exemplify God's nature. We are called to, if we are children of God, we are called to act like our father. We are to exemplify his nature. And this leads to our second reason to practice divine love in verses 9 through 10. And that is to display God's salvation. To display God's salvation. God is the one who gives new birth. And he is the one who enables us to know him and to exemplify his nature. Look down at verse 9. John continues, he writes, By this, the love of God was manifested in us. Manifested meaning revealed. God has revealed his love to us. And how has he done this? The by this points to how he has done this. To enable born-again believers to love, God did something. He has done something for us in his love. Out of his love, he acted due to who he is. Look back down at 9. What did he do? God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. God has revealed his love through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not just anybody. He is God's only son, his only begotten son. John is pointing to the uniqueness of Christ, pointing to his deity. God did not just send anyone. God the Father sent God the Son. And he sent Christ. Christ left glory of being with the Father, came to earth to do something. He left being with the Father to become man, to become flesh. And this, this is an act of love which all of history centers around. And it was done for a purpose. God sent God the Son for a purpose. And what was that purpose? Look, at verse, look back at verse 9. So that we might live through him. God sent his son not just enable us to love, but to give us life, that we now live a life for him, that he has given us life. And through faith alone, in the atoning work of Christ, there is new life, and we have now a life that is centered around our relationship with God. God has done this for us out of his love. Now look back down. Now look down at verse ten. God, ex, uh, John rather, John rather, explains how God provided a way for 
us of living this new life in Christ. Look down with me at verse 10. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So just to start off with, is there anything that we did to earn God's favor to have new life, new birth in him, to gain this new life in Christ? And the answer is absolutely no. We did nothing to deserve it. He sent his son out of his own love. Nothing to do with us, nothing to do with our, the way we love, but it was because of who God is that he did this act. We have done nothing to gain God's love his, or his merit of favor. There's nothing we've done to merit new life in him. God has acted because of who he is and who his nature is. He is love, and out of his love, he has acted on behalf of us. And what has he done? He sent his son. But more specifically, he sent his son for a purpose. Look back down at verse 10 with me. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, this word propitiation, it is a word that probably back in my youth as I was reading, it would just be kind of skim over. It's kind of a complicated word. I don't know what it is. Now, whenever I'm reading and this word pops up, I just halt. It causes me to just come to a screeching halt in my reading because of this word. Wherever you are on this spectrum, we need to have an understanding of what propitiation is. It needs to be better understood, and it needs to be something to be meditated over. Christ is our propitiation for our sins. And propitiation, just very simply, it is the removal of wrath by an offering of a gift. And for Christians, wrath has been removed, wrath that we deserve. And it's not just because God just decided to just kind of give us a break. He's just going to kind of turn a blind eye to who we are as sinners. No. Propitiation means that Christ took the full wrath of God that should have been poured out on us as sinners, as sinners, he took that instead. Through his sacrifice, Christ has taken the wrath of God for us. Christ's sacrifice has appeased and averted the wrath of God. That is the good news, something that we deserve because of what Christ has done. He has appeased and averted the wrath of God. He has satisfied the wrath of God. Remember, we are, born, we are born enemies of God. And Christ's sacrifice on the cross changes that. It changes a believer's position before God. It go, we, are, we go from a position of enmity with, towards God towards reconciliation with our God, with the Creator. The wrath, wrath is removed from us because it was poured out on Christ. Forgiveness, the forgiveness that we live in as Christians, it comes at a very terrible price. Christ paid that price. And that price, a price that we absolutely couldn't even begin to pay. He did that for us. So what does God's love look like? His love looks like him pouring out his wrath on the only one that deserves his love, for those who do not 
deserve his love. He poured out his wrath on his beloved son for the love of those who were completely incapable of showing love in return. That is what God has done out of his love. And why would, why would God do this? Why would he do this? Why couldn't he just let us off the hook, turn a blind eye, just kind of forget about things? And it is because of our sin. Now we, like to, now, we like to downplay our own sin. A lot of times when we sin against God, we sin against others, we like to almost just play it off as a mistake, say something like, my bad, I'm sorry. And we try to downplay it, but our sin cannot be overlooked. Sinning against a holy God is something that has to be reconciled. There needs to be justice for that kind of sin. Now, earlier I read Exodus 34, 6 through 7. And if you notice, I did not quite finish verse 7. And I want to go back and do that now. At the end of verse 7, after God has proclaimed his loving kindness, his generosity towards sinners, and yet he says, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is perfectly just. He is perfectly just, and he is the very standard of righteousness. And most people are okay with him being a God of love. That's something most people are okay with, but not a lot of people are okay with him being the God of justice. But being the God of justice, he must, he must punish sin. It is the right thing to do. And when we are sinning against a holy God who is perfectly just, he must act on that. There must be something that he does to punish that sin because he always does what's right. And what is right to do with sinners? That is eternal punishment for sinning against an eternal God. But here's the good news. Christ took the wrath of God for those who would put their trust and hope in his sacrifice. And because of Christ's sacrifice, we are not just let off the hook. God just doesn't just turn a blind eye. Instead, we are justified. We are justified in Christ's righteousness. God can justly show love to us, to those who do not deserve it. Those who were enemies against him, he can justly show love through what Christ has done. Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He has taken that wrath away from us. And not just has he taken the wrath away from us, but it's not just something God is now not going to punish us, but now we even have a relationship with God. We know God. And if you're a Christian, your life should be centered around proclaiming God's salvation. Your life should be a proclamation, the way you live, a God's salvation for you of what he has done. We should be a living display of his salvation, what he has done for us. And living a life of divine love points to our salvation through our loving God. And as Christians, our love should flow for each other, should flow out of God's act of love for us. That should be the response. Everything he has done, that should drive us to do the same, to have that same type of love. Our love for one another should display God's love for us as Christians. The next two verses, 10 through 11, explains the third reason to practice divine love. 
verses 11 through 12, the third reason to practice divine love is to testify of God's indwelling presence. To testify of God's indwelling presence. God has done great things through his love. He has provided salvation through his son for those who put their faith in him and who he is and what he has done. And through the works of Christ, there is new birth. There is life of knowing and having a relationship with God. So what should be the conclusion? What should be the conclusion of everything that God has done for us, knowing what he has done through his son? There is only one right conclusion to that, to God's acts of love and who he is as a God of love. Look down at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is the only logical conclusion to verses 7 through 10. Is since God has done these things, we should love one another. Now, Remember, as those who were born in sin, with this biblical definition of this self-sacrificing love, this is an impossibility. But through the propitiation of Christ and taking away our wrath, salvation through faith in him alone, with new birth, loving one another is not just a possibility. It's not just something that we now are enabled to do, but it is an obligation. It is a command. It is something that we must do. Through God's love, we can love, but not just that, we must love because of what he has done for us. John continues in verse 12. He writes, no one has seen God at any time. Now, this is kind of an odd thing to say. It almost kind of seems out of place, but it is important to know this, that no one has seen God because of who he is. Going back to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, when he makes this request to see God, God's response is, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. It is a terrifying thing to be in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And yet, look, look at the rest of verse 12. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. The way that we show love to one another is a testimony to God's presence in our life, a holy and just righteous God. What he has done and how we love exposes who we are through him and his presence with us, his indwelling presence with us. The way that we live outwardly, should be a testimony to God's internal work, his internal presence within our life. How do people witness an unseen God? Through his creation, through his word, but also through his work in us. When we are being changed in the likeness of Christ, when we are living out God's commands, people should be able to see the work of God in us, his presence with us. Salvation through Christ does more than just avert God's wrath. It reconciles us with a God. It reconciles us with God, and we are indwelled with his spirit. As John says, God abides with us. And God's presence in our lives is a testimony to, as John puts it, not only just him abiding with us, but with him, with his presence in our lives, is also a testimony to his love being perfected in us. Now, when we love, love one another, we know God is with us and his love is perfected in us, but it doesn't mean we're perfect. 
It does not mean that we're perfect. That will not happen till when we are with Christ, completely clothed in his righteousness. But what it does mean is that God has perfected his goal of salvation, the goal of changing us to where now we are his children, and now we are in the process of sanctification, becoming more like him, and we are displaying, we are living out his attributes. His love, his goal of love, salvation, has been perfected in us that now we, are, we have a life of living for him. And the way that we do this, the way that we live, the way that, as John is talking about, the way we love one another, it is a testimony of God's presence in our lives, the way that we live. How else could we display his great attributes such as love? This can only happen through his works, through our salvation, and through his presence in our life of, of changing us, saving us, and sanctifying us. This can only happen through God. So as is Christians, we are obligated and we must practice to love one another. This is... This command from the Apostle John to love one another, this is not something he just came up with by himself. It is something that he received, not only as just an apostle through God, but remember, John walked with Christ. He walked with Christ. He wrote the Gospel of John, a testimony to his time with Christ. And many of you probably remember that when John was sitting around the table with Jesus at the Last Supper, during that time, Christ gave the disciples of a command. And John records that in, jo- in John 13, 35 through thir- 34. 34 through 35, rather. And Christ writes, Christ said to them, rather, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So how do you know that you are a follower of Christ? If you love his other followers, his disciples, if you show that love to people, even if they do not deserve it, be that self-sacrificing love, that shows that you are a follower of Christ. And that command to his early disciples that John gives to the early church in his epistle, that command is for us today. God is a God of love, his nature is love, and we are commanded to show that same love to others. And now if you were here this morning, and you're kind of thinking to yourself, I don't know if I have that love. I do not know if I display God's attributes. That is a question to ask yourself. Do not walk away from that question. Do not just kind of push that to the side. That is a question to embrace because Scripture commands us to examine ourselves. And I just want to tell you, there is hope for you. There is good news. And that is that God is a God of love. He saves. His nature is love and he forgives. And he has provided a way of salvation from his wrath through the sacrifice of his son. And if you put your trust and hope in his sacrifice and repent of your sins and follow him, he will change you. He right now offers that salvation to those who will believe in him. 
And if you have any questions about any of that, what it means to be a Christian, anything about salvation, here in a moment, Steve Schulte will be at our prayer room, and he would love to speak with you if you have any questions concerning that. And I just want to say, we have a mighty God who saves. And now one of the privileges of preaching is just looking out and seeing those that I know are faithful believers, those that God has changed, those who are faithfully living for him. And I just want to encourage you, those who are, those of you who are beloved by God. The Christian life is hard. And there's lots of times living in a sinful world, fighting our own sin is difficult. There's many times we slip and we fall. And I want to encourage you that if, if there has been anybody in your life that maybe you have not loved like you should, God is a God who forgives and he will forgive you. But also, if there's somebody even here this morning, go to them and make it right with them. Go to them and ask forgiveness. As a church, we should constantly be in a process of confessing sin to one another, forgiving one another, and loving one another. Do that today. It is a gift we have of being in the body of Christ. And then also, this week, think about how you are loving others. How are you being self-sacrificing to those within the body, other Christians that you know, just even people that you know in the workplace? How do people see God's love in you? And I just want to, I just want to say, just please do not forget this. You are beloved by God. And us as being beloved by God, we should live as a living display of his love for us by the way we love and by the way we serve one another. His love should drive us to love.